Turn to Joel chapter two, if you would. And we left off in uh, what some might say is, why'd you finish in the middle of a chapter on a Wednesday night? You should have at least just read the last five verses and, and called it good, you know, and then, then you could have uh, packed it up. But I wanna show you something here about this. Um, one of the things that we saw in the previous study, as we looked at Joel chapter one and a half, your uh, chapter one and two verses one through 27, is we saw that that really is um, the day of the Lord versus the day of the locust. The first part is the day of the locust. And then uh, we talked about locust. Um, and then the Lord talks about how he's gonna restore the years the locust have eaten. Um, but the last sort of portion of the book of Joel is not about the day of the locust, it's about the day of the Lord, which is a coming day. And that's kind of the topic of tonight. Um, but you might find it interesting that the, the, in the Hebrew Bible, uh, the book of Joel actually has four chapters, not three. And, uh, and if you read the Hebrew Bible, what you'll find is the verses that I've got up on the screen right there, Joel chapter two, verses 28 through 32, that's actually chapter three, that little chunk. The part we have left here at the end of chapter two is the, is the chapter three of the Hebrew Bible. And then the chapter three of our Bibles is the chapter four of the Hebrew Bible. Um, uh, why can't we just get it all synced up and make them all match? Uh, it's a good question. I always ask that about a lot of things. But, um, but the truth is um, the Hebrews, in the, when they div divvied up the verses and chapters, if you would, they saw this little section as kind of a standalone. And uh, I think it, it's probably a better way of doing it, if you ask me, uh, to uh, just really acknowledge now we're shifting gears in that verse to talking about the day of the locust, and then in verse 28, we start talking about now the day of the Lord. So that's why you know all the drama around this is because uh, it, it really is considered a chapter by many and, and really not just the Jewish scholars, but all biblical scholars say, yeah, this kind of stands alone. So um, Joel chapter two, uh, uh, verse 28 um, and onward from this point on is really gonna be speaking about the day of the Lord. And we're gonna have to sort of define what the day of the Lord is. Um, let's talk about that just a little bit, because uh, if you're kind of new to the Bible, the idea of the day of the Lord, what's the day of the Lord and what day is it gonna be, October 23rd? Or like, what day is it gonna be? Well, it's talking more idiomatically of, of, a, of, a, of a time period. Um, like on that day, you know, things are gonna change. And it's not like there's a literal day we're talking about, we're talking about a, a time period that's coming. And, uh, and it's gonna be, um, you know, like uh, when an when when older, you know, fellow would say, well, back in my day, was he talking about, you know, the single day? No, he's talking about, you know, an era of his lifetime. That's really kind of what we're talking about, the day of the Lord. Um, and the day of the Lord, you know, there's questions that you ask, like number one, uh, when will that come? When is the day of the Lord? What, um, and, and, uh, uh, and the answer is, wouldn't you like to know? Uh, wouldn't we like to know? But no man knows the day or the hour of the day of the Lord. We don't know the exact timing of when it's gonna happen. Now, before we talk a little more about when it will come, one of the things you gotta recognize in scripture is there are several days that the Lord talks about in that same sort of uh, idiom. Uh, and that is um, the four days of scripture. I'll just call it that for tonight's study. Um, but the four days of scripture, it starts with man's day. The Bible talks about this. Um, and that's really um, uh, the day we're living in right now in, in biblical terms. We're living in the day of man. 
And it all started when Adam and Eve, uh, you know, were in the Garden of Eden. And when they took and sinned, uh, took the fruit, sinned against the Lord, and that really entered into the world, the day of man. So when, when we really acknowledge the era that we're living, we have to understand that God says, yeah, this is the day of man. And basically one thing you and I should be thinking about as Christians is everything that ba bad that's happening in the world today, people say, well, if God is love, then why? This is the day of man. The day of God is coming. The day of the Lord is coming. The day of Christ is coming. But the day of man, that, that's here. And that explains a lot. Um, we should own this day when it comes to uh, evil and bad and sin and disease and trouble. You know, people that sort of scratch their heads, well, why is there cancer? The answer, it's the day of man. When we sinned, we ushered disease and plagues and death into this world. It's our fault. Um, well, why didn't God create, create a world that was perfect? He did, and man messed it up. Uh, we have to own why we live in the condition that we do. And, you know, I always talk about the insurance company when the tree falls on your car, they say, well, that was an act of God. Uh, nope, it's the day of man. That's why that tree fell on your car. We live in a fallen world, in a fallen state, and it's our fault. And, and that's why we as Christians, I think it's good to have that worldview to understand that because so many people sort of charge God um, with all these things. God gave man free will. Man used the free will that he had uh, in a horrible way. And thus we are living in this time called the day of man. And it's called that by the way, in Genesis 2.15, right there in scripture. The second day that's notable in the Bible is the day of Christ. Um, and I put a ton of scriptures in there. You can jot them down if you want to. 1 Corinthians 1.8, 1 Corinthians 5.5 5 and onward. Those scriptures all refer to this day called the day of Christ. Now, this one is more of a day than the other days. Um, but at the same time, uh, some argue that it's more than just a day. Um, but I'll show you why I believe this really will be a literal day when this happens. Uh, and it's, it really is the rapture of the church. If you look at these scriptures that are called the day of Christ and, and refer to it as that, it's always linked to the event called the rapture of the church, where Christ comes, doesn't come to the earth, but he comes and meets us in the air that's the rapture of the church. And you know, the key scripture is that last one, 1 Thessalonians 4, 17, that's kind of the key scripture when it comes to that. I'll, I'll just read it real quick with you. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up, harpazo in the Greek, raptured in the Latin, together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Um, and that's the rapture of the church. So that's just one example. The day of Christ is that day uh, called the rapture. The third day that we should be cognizant of is the day of the Lord. Um, and that's the one that Joel focuses on. Um, but it's not just Joel. I put a bunch of scriptures under that one as well. Joel chapter 1, uh, 115 talks about the day of the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 1 and 11, 31. You know, like it's all through the book of Joel. J Amos, next week, Lord willing, when we get into that book, we'll see uh, more mention of the day of the Lord. Uh, Zephaniah and Isaiah also talk about the day of the Lord. And that's kind of the focus of tonight. We'll talk more about exactly what that is in a second. But the fourth day you should know about is called the day of God. And we read about that in the scriptures. Um, you know, um, by the way, um, when it comes to the day of God, um, this is when you can kind of say, that's when the world can start saying, if you have anything to complain about, good luck doing it then because everything will be perfect during the day of God. After the millennial kingdom, 
uh, there's, there's gonna be a, an event. So um, right now you're starting to get a framework of what the day of the Lord is. The day of the Lord, I believe, kicks into gear. And by the way, there's a little debate on this one about um, you know, when exactly the day of the Lord begins. Uh, but I believe the rapture of the church is the day of Christ. And then as soon as that happens, that kicks into gear the day of the Lord, which is the tribulation period all the way through the millennial kingdom. That's, that's what I believe the day of the Lord is defined by as you read the scriptures on that. But what happens after the millennial kingdom? Well, if you remember in the Bible, um, there's gonna be a time because Satan had, remember he was released at the end of the millennial kingdom for a short time. And he's gonna corrupt the earth again with his um, you know, evil at the end of the millennial kingdom. And it'll be at that point, the Lord will say, okay, this old earth, heaven and earth are gonna pass away and he's gonna dissolve it as the Bible says. And the scripture reference to the day of God, there is 2 Peter chapter three, verse 12, which says this, um, and you guys remember this, uh, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, that's the earth, heaven and earth, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation or you know, the way you act and godliness, looking for and hastening to the coming of the day of God wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with a fervent heat. Nevertheless, according to his promise, look for new heavens and new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Um, that's, that's, that's where if you're kind of looking at the time scheme, we're living in the day of man or the church age now. Rapture of the church happens, tribulation period. After the tribulation, the second coming of Christ. And after that, Christ comes and rules and reigns for a, a thousand years called the millennial kingdom. And after the millennium, then the Lord is gonna cause this heaven and earth to pass away. And then there's a new heaven and a new earth. And we all live happily ever after at that point. That's the way that story rolls. So um, on this question, you know, uh, when will it come? It's gonna come, you know, we don't know the day or the hour of the second coming of Christ. We don't know the day or the hour of the rapture of the church. So that means we don't know when the day of the Lord is gonna be. We, we don't have any idea exactly when that's gonna happen. But we know that after the rapture of the church happens, I believe it'll be right after that is the day of the, day of the Lord. Um, so that's kind of the, the um, when will, will it happen? What will happen is another question. What will happen uh, with the day of the Lord? Well, let's, let's begin reading our text here because we start to get a bit of a description of what the day of the Lord is gonna look like there in verse 28 of chapter two. Let's read. It's Joel chapter two, verse 28. It says, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood, fire, and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be delivered, for in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Lord hath said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. So you can kind of see how verses 28 through 32 
uh, ring a little differently than the, the previous chapter that we read and chapter and a half about the day of the locust. Now we're talking about the grand scheme of things. And, and it talks about, you know, the pillars of fire and smoke and the heavens and the earth and the moon and everything, you know, turning to blood and all this stuff. By the way, some of, some of you have said, Brett, um, why aren't you into the blood moons and all this stuff? And, you know, in the last four or five years, that was kind of a big thing. The reason I never really got on that bandwagon is because um, it seemed to me fairly speculative and um, it's interesting. And the Bible does say uh, the, earth, the, the moon will turn to blood, uh, the color of blood in certain times in uh, both here in Joel, but also in the book of Revelation, as it turns out, there's uh, several mentions. And even in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus gave in Matthew 24, um, there's talking about the darkening of the sun and the, the blood moon and stuff like that. But here's the problem. When, when some of these, you know, um, I think well-meaning um, prophecy buffs get kind of locked in saying, well, these are the blood moons and there's gonna be three or four blood moons and it's on the fourth blood moon, that's gonna be the rapture of the church and the second coming of Christ. That's when you start putting up red flags saying, wait a minute. Um, as soon as you start kind of using these um, astronomical uh, scenes as sort of a way to nail down, if somebody's trying to nail down the day or the hour, that's a big mistake, no matter what you're talking about. Um, like, we, we don't know. So when people, you know, over the last three or four years would say, Brett, what about the blood moons, the blood moons? I'd say, well, interesting, but we'll see, we'll see. Uh, and as it turns out, I, I believe it's not shaking out and it hasn't shaken out as everybody thought it was gonna be. Um, but I think we have to be careful when we talk about Bible prophecy to not sort of try to name things as, well, this is for sure it. Um, I think we should be careful to use language as did Peter and James and Paul saying, could it be? Or it might just be in our lifetime or it might happen in our, but, but to say, absolutely, this is happening now. And I know who the antichrist is and I run for your life from those guys. I'll tell you why I run from them is because they make prophecy update people look stupid. That's just true. They, they, it makes us all look dumb when these, these guys, and it's really a bummer because I've had guys that I really respected in their Bible prophecy and, and the things that they've been you know, teaching over the years. But once they jump on some of these bandwagons, I won't name the name because I still really love this guy and he's no longer with us, he's in heaven, but really into Bible prophecy um, and great. One of the smartest guys out there. But he really got into, the, remember the Y2K thing? He, he got so into the Y2K thing that that's when the Lord's coming and you know, it's, it's gonna be the end of the world. And, and he just, for whatever reason, got kind of um, you know, just fixed on that uh, topic. One week before Y2K, back at the middle school, any of you guys were there, if you remember, I said, this is gonna be nothing and it's gonna have nothing to do with the rapture of the church and the end of time. Uh, that's what I said. I had a person get up and leave the church and march out of there. He said, you're, you're leading your congregation into total destruction by saying that. This is a true story. That guy, he, sold, he had a really nice furniture company locally here and it was, he was really you know, well to do. And he, he sold all of his possessions, um, changed his life, got you know, basically his guns and bunker and all that and did all that. Um, and he, and he said, Brett, you've misled your congregation. And then January 1st, uh, 1201, nothing happened. Uh, and he probably wished he still had his furniture store and he could have probably still, still been going today had he just chilled out. And uh, you know, one of the things the Bible also says about the end times is we're supposed to occupy until he comes. What that means is you and I live our lives as we would either way. If, the, if, if we did know the rapture of the church was happening tomorrow, which we don't, 
But if we did, we should still do what we were planning on doing, you know, without that knowledge. We should go on and occupy. That's what that term means when, when the Lord talks about that. Just keep doing what God's called you to do and be who you're being. So that, that way, if the rapture of the church happens, you're ready. But if it doesn't happen, you're just occupying. You're continually living for Christ, uh, rapture or no rapture. So that's an important thing. And, and I, I hope we at Athey Creek can kind of help uh, lovingly nudge some of our more radical friends and Christians who like to get into the sensational, um, you know, blood moons and all this stuff. Just lovingly kind of put your arm around some, you know, you gotta be careful on this stuff because what if that doesn't really shape out like Harold Camping and some of the other weird things that have happened. Uh, let's keep our feet in the word. Uh, stick with scripture, watch out for uh, speculation. Does that make sense? I think that's an important thing. Um, so, so uh, you know, the second thing, what will happen? Well, it says here, what's gonna happen? It, the, first of all, interestingly enough, he says, you know, I'm gonna pour out my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, young men shall see visions. And by the way, I think that's happening uh, today. There's some interesting, and that you say, Brett, you just tried to talk about stop being wacko when it comes to Bible prophecy. Yeah, but this is something the Bible says will happen as we get nearer, I think, to the day of the Lord. There's gonna be young men dreaming dreams, or pardon me, young men uh, seeing visions, older men dreaming dreams. Um, and again, you have to be careful with that because sometimes your dreams are just the pizza the night you, you had the night before. Gotta be careful. But if you do have a dream or a vision that um, it seems like it's different and uh, coming from the Lord, you, you kind of have to weigh that out and ask the Lord, Lord, was that from you? And with a dream, you always have to seek confirmation and you have to see if, if it's contrary to scripture, it was not from the Lord. You can know that, like there's measurement uh, that you can do with your dreams and visions to make sure that it lines up with scripture. That's an important thing as well. Um, but that's gonna happen in the day of the Lord. Now, by the way, the day of the Lord is tricky and I'll tell you why, because it's gonna be a horrible, terrible day as it's mentioned there in verse 31, before that great and terrible day of the Lord. But that's gonna be the first seven years of the day of the Lord. That's gonna be the terrible part. In fact, the, the seven years, the three and a half last part of that seven years is gonna be the worst of the worst. But also the day of the Lord includes the millennial kingdom, which is gonna be glorious. So it's a little tricky when you're talking about the day of the Lord, it could be both good or bad, depending on what part of the day of the Lord you're talking about. Are we talking about the tribulation period of it or the millennial kingdom period of it? Um, so there's some interesting questions about that. But one of the things the Lord's gonna do is pour out his spirit. Now, some of you are saying, Brett, when you read verses 28 through 32, that sounded kind of familiar. Um, uh, and you might wonder, well, you know, when, when did we read that before? Maybe some of you are like, I've never read the book of Joel, but that still sounds familiar to me. Where have we read it? Well, turn over to the book of Acts with me real quick. Flip over to the book of Acts, chapter two. One of the first sermons preached to the newly formed church of Jesus Christ. Um, if anybody could say, when was the church really kicked into gear? Anybody wanna guess? Acts chapter two, that's a good guess right there. Yeah, no, I think that was more than I guess. Yeah, the day of Pentecost. Uh, you know, there were, there were several feasts, of course, of the Jews and, you know, some were compulsory, some were, you know, more voluntary, but um, this, the day of Pentecost was a big deal. But the Jews were told, Peter and the, 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 the disciples were told to go and wait for the coming upon. Remember the three relationships with the Holy Spirit? There's the, the Holy Spirit's with you before you're even saved 
when you become a Christian, he's in you. But then, then there's that third relationship or preposition where it says the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And Jesus told his disciples, go and wait in Jerusalem for that coming upon of the Holy Spirit. So they're all waiting in this room on the day of Pentecost. Let's read chapter two, verse one. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all in one accord in one place. So that's a lot of people in one Honda. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Um, verse two. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind and it filled the house where they were sitting. Um, uh, and they were, it appeared to them like cloven tongues like of fire and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under, uh, under heaven. Um, now, when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because every, every man heard them speak in his own language. So, you know, Jerusalem would have been buzzing with people from all over the world because of these, the day of Pentecost, the feast. And they're all saying, how are these Jews speaking our native languages? Um, and they were all amazed in verse seven, marveled saying one to another, behold, are not these all which speak Galileans? Now remember, Galileans were podunk hicks. Um, they were the people that, you know, uh, you'd walk up, how you doing? They'd, they'd spit on the ground and say, tell you what. <laughs> like that, the, the Galilean was sort of the hick of the day. That, remember, that's why they thought the disciples were just unlearned and ignorant men because they spoke like Galileans. You doing pretty good? Pert near. Darn tootin'. Like, um, like that's the Galilean. They were sort of the hick of that day. And yet they're like, all these guys from Galilee are speaking in our language. What in the world's going on here? That's why they're marveling so much. Well, it, and it lists a bunch of nations. Uh, you know, verse nine, Parthians, Medes, uh, Elamites, and all the way down through verse 10, these different people, verse 11, it says, Cretes and Arabians, we do hear them speak in our tongues, the wonderful works of God. And they were all amazed, verse 12, and were in doubt saying one to another, what meaneth this? Others mocking said, these men are full of new wine. These guys are drunk. Um, so that's what's going on. Uh, the day of Pentecost, tongues of fire over their head. They all start speaking in the native tongue languages of all the people around Jerusalem. And it's this wind, rushing wind, which is by the way, the word spirit, pneuma, ruach in Hebrew, um, is, is the Holy Spirit coming upon his church right here in uh, Acts chapter two, day of Pentecost. So they're all, you know, some people are saying these people are drunk. Others are like, what in the world's going on? They're confused. Peter steps up and gives the first sermon of the newly filled with the Holy Spirit church. And he says this in verse 14, but Peter standing up with the 11, lifted up his voice and said unto them, you men of Judea and all that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you and hearken to my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. It's, it's only 9 a.m. Uh, these guys aren't drunk. Now today, there's people getting drunk at 9 a.m., but in Bible times, they didn't do that. <laughs> but um, it says, these guys are not drunk, but check it out, verse 16, here it is. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my uh, servants and on my handmaidens, I will pour out in those days of my spirit and they shall prophesy. And he, um, in verse 19, I will show the wonders in heaven above, the signs in the earth beneath, blood, fire, and vapors of smoke. 
and the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So there's our scripture. Peter is teaching just like, you know, we would do at Athey Creek on a Sunday morning. We'd take a passage and read it and say, here's what the Bible says here. That's what Peter's doing here. He's giving us a model of how to do a sermon. Now, right here is where there's been all kinds of confusion and I, and I get why, but you have to be careful about what Peter's saying here. And th there's a nuance that some people sort of blow off which you shouldn't blow off. Um, do you remember in the Bible when prophecy is fulfilled, what kind of language does the Bible or the person of the Bible use? They say, you know, thus, it was fulfilled what the prophecy of Jeremiah says. You know, you've read that, you know, that's the kind of language. So the, the prophecy of Jeremiah was fulfilled on that day. Like that's the language of the Bible. But that's not the language of Peter here. Peter says, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. He didn't say this is that which was fulfilled now by the prophet Joel. The reason this is important is some of you are saying, Brett, you said the day of the Lord starts with the tribulation and goes to the millennial kingdom. Well, I didn't say that, I'm saying the Bible says that. First of all, the Bible defines that for us. But it seems that, you know, Peter's saying here, yeah, Joel's word about the day of the Lord, it's fulfilled today. But he, Peter never says that. If you back up, he says, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. Typically in Bible language, you'd hear that person say, if it was being fulfilled, even as Jesus, remember when Jesus read from the book of Isaiah and he said, today, this is fulfilled in your ears, you know? Like that's the language of the Bible. So this is what you need to understand. Peter is not necessarily saying the prophecy of Joel being the day of the Lord, that it's fulfilled today with the, the day of Pentecost and the beginning of the church. He's saying that the pouring out of the spirit that was prophesied by Joel that's gonna come in the, in the day of the Lord, that kind of pouring out of the spirit is happening even right now. But uh, it's, so he's almost saying more in a metaphor or simile, he's saying that the pouring out of the spirit, like it's gonna be in the day of the Lord that was foretold by the prophet Joel. And there's evidence not only in verse um, 16 that says, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, but he also says, you know, um, I will show wonders, verse 19, and is, and is reminding us of what that says. Um, the signs in, in the earth beneath, the blood and the fire. Verse 20, the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon to blood, listen, before that great and notable day of the Lord come. Um, and it shall come to pass and whatsoever shall call, who shall ever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So what's cool about this is it's almost like Peter saying, we're seeing sort of the foreshadow and the, 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 the what, do you, what do you call the, the tremors, you know, the pre-tremors of an earthquake. It's like we're feeling those, those tremors of the coming day of the Lord um, because we're seeing the pouring out of the spirit. Now you and I can also add to that for you blood moon people. Uh, we have seen the, or the moon uh, with interestingly, um, uh, you know, uh, some interesting, you know, celestial events in the last four or five years, as far as the moon turning into red and stuff like that. Uh, could that be part of the foreshadowing? I don't know, could be, it's possible. But I think that's kind of the heart and nature that Peter is saying this because um, this would not kick off the day of Pentecost and the Holy Spirit being poured out on his church. Um, this would not be the beginning of the day of the Lord, but it does sort of foreshadow. Uh, now, some of you might say, Brad, I'm also confused because you taught us from 2 Thessalonians chapter two, remember? Um, who is letting? 
Right now we're living in the church age, the day of man, the church age. And right now there's something holding back the antichrist from coming. Question, who is holding back? If you go to 2 Thessalonians chapter two, who's doing the holding back, anybody? I heard two answers, the Holy Spirit and the church. Which one is it? Both, right? You're right. Um, it's, and you can see that built into the text of 2 Thessalonians. We are the church filled with the Holy Spirit. That happened on the day of Pentecost with, right here in Acts chapter two. And the Holy Spirit moves and uses his church uh, to be his hands and feet and what have you. So some of you might be saying, okay, Brett, the pouring out of the Spirit um, but then it says he, the church, and you could also say the Holy Spirit. It seems that it almost includes the Spirit when it says, and he shall be taken out of the way. What event is that? The rapture of the church. That's 2 Thessalonians 2. And by the way, if, if you're new to these scriptures and I'm just kind of rattling them off, there's stuff we've been studying the last several months. So uh, it's okay. You'll catch up on uh, as you just keep plugging away. But, but the idea of the church being pulled out of the way, you might say, well, then the Holy Spirit's gone. But you have to understand, Joel doesn't say that's what's happened. The Holy Spirit does take his church up, out, and we meet Jesus, and that's true. And, and, and by the way, I think the Holy Spirit's gonna have a different role because the Holy Spirit largely in the church age uses the church. But how's the Holy Spirit gonna be used <clears throat> during the tribulation period and the millennial kingdom? Now there's an interesting question. I believe, now I'm getting deep, uh, maybe even out on a limb, I believe as the Holy Spirit is to fill his church during the church age, I believe the Lord's gonna do a massive pouring out of spirit during the tribulation period. And who's gonna be most affected by that? Anybody wanna take a guess? The Jews. The Jews are gonna be filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Bible talks about the seal of the spirit that's gonna be put on these Jews and, and 144,000, not Jehovah's Witness, um, this is 144,000 Jews. They're listed there by tribe um, there in Revelation chapter seven. So you gotta understand that um, this, this idea of the pouring out of the spirit, like Joel is talking about, like Peter is reminding us, this is gonna be happening during the tribulation period. But don't be confused. The spirit was poured out on the church on the day of Pentecost. Um, and man, we could go way off on this uh, and talk about... Um, uh, was it just for the day of Pentecost as some you know, cessationists try to argue that the Holy Spirit is done working in his church? Uh, you know, and and I, I want you to know that I believe that the Holy Spirit started moving in the church there on the day of Pentecost and the Holy Spirit is still moving in his church today. And the manifestations of the Holy Spirit, uh, I believe are alive and well. And I think we should be careful not to throw those off. Some of our, you know, Brothers and sisters, by the way, this isn't um, what I would call a, an essential doctrine where you know, you're either gonna go to hell or heaven if you believe in the Holy Spirit moving in his church today. I've got good brothers and sisters that are filled with the Holy Spirit and they don't even realize it. Some of my favorite guys that I read from you know, the dead guys, the guys that have you know, done sermons 100 years ago, some of them didn't believe in the manifestation of the Holy Spirit in their day, but I guarantee you they were filled with the Holy Spirit whether they knew it or not. And when they got to heaven, they were probably like, oh, bummer, I got that one wrong. Holy Spirit. Now, now the reason so many people throw the Holy Spirit out, say it's not for today, is because of the abuses of the Holy Spirit, so-called, where people are flopping around on the floor and you know being slain in the Spirit. Stuff the Bible doesn't teach at all. Um, that's stuff people making stuff up, um, and you have to be careful about that. I, I believe the Holy Spirit is defined as how He will move in His church. And the Bible even says when, when 1 Corinthians 14 spent a huge amount of time telling us how the Holy Spirit is supposed to operate in the church. 
and it's to be decent and in order. And the spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet. In other words, the Holy Spirit doesn't make people do things they don't want to or not ready to do. Um, the whole, you know, the whole, our Pentecostal brothers, uh, a, lot, a lot of them get a little too crazy because they just love the experience and the emotion and the hype that kind of comes around that. But our Baptist brothers and sisters, bless their hearts, they're kind of the chosen frozen or they traditionally have been. Um, by the way, the Baptist church, I have to say, uh, a lot of them have really come a long way in seeing that, that, that there was a little too much maybe locked down on that. And I have to admire uh, the Baptists for their theology as it's, it does seem to be, op- I've, a lot of my Baptist friends have opened up uh, um, to um, the, the moving of the Holy Spirit in their lives in kind of a neat way. But, I'm way off course, where was I? Oh yeah, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit uh, in the last days, as Peter calls it. But um, Joel is implying the time called the day of the Lord, which is after the rapture of the church. So what will happen? The pouring out of the Spirit. And then you can also imply from our text here in Joel, back to Joel, if you'd turn there, um, you know, there's the signs and wonders. Uh, Verse 30, I will show wonders. So what will happen? The pouring out of the spirit and wonders around the earth, the moon being red, the sun being darkened and all the things that go along with the great and notable, terrible day of the Lord. Um, When will the day of the Lord end? Um, Well, um, we've already kind of talked about that when we listed the various days, but it's gonna end when the end of the millennial kingdom is over. After Satan is loosed for a short while, he'll he'll be then, done away with at the end uh, where I believe that's where the great white throne judgment's gonna be. And then, uh, and then the new heavens and the new earth, Second Peter 3, verses three through 12. Um, one more question before we move on. Um, uh, and that is, what does it mean to me? You might say, Brett, that's great for the day of the Lord. Um, it's great for Joel to say it to these people as a word of prophecy. It's cool that Peter brought it up in Acts chapter two. But what does it mean to me? Well, I think the thing that um, it should mean to us as in the church age is what a joy and what a blessing it is to know that we're gonna be taken up out of here. And that's where 1 Thessalonians 5, I already shared with you 1 Thessalonians 4, that we which are alive and remain will be caught up, raptured and taken up to be with the Lord. But then 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 really gives us some great um, encouragement And by the way, um, uh, one of the things you and I should be committed to uh, when it comes to um, talking about end times, and and we gotta be careful about this, and I'll tell you how this works. If you're an old hand at end times, eschatology, Bible prophecy, you've been around it long enough to where you're like, yeah, man, things are awesome. It's a wonderful time to be alive. I, I find myself saying that. This is a wonderful time to be alive. And people look at me like, you're an idiot. Don't you see the lies and COVID and, um, you know, and all the weird things that are going around in the world? And, and see, um, to the average person, I, can, I have to remember, there's a lot of people really fearful today and upset and angry and what in the world's happening? And um, I even, you know, um, I don't know if you guys heard, there was Joe Rogan had a doctor, doctor, um, yes, Malone. Interesting, kind of gone viral. So a lot of you heard it. It's, it's an amazing podcast. But one of the things that struck me is how in the middle of that podcast, Rogan, who's a fairly level-headed person, a non, a not, you know, not really a Christian <laughs> to say the least, but, but he's, he's an intellectual, I would say, and a beefcake, but um, uh, he's an interesting dude. He's an interesting guy. 
Um, but in the middle of that interview, he just kind of freaked out and, and, he, and he, you know, used the Lord's name in vain and cussed and he's like, we're toast. Like this, this kind of level-headed guy basically just said, we're done for. The world is totally messed up. And I thought, man, that's the way a lot of people look. I mean, if you're, if you're astute and if you're looking at what's going on, true, the world's going down. And here I am as a Christian, this is awesome. <laughs> and you're like, Fred, come on, man. Is that a good witness? And it may not be. I'm just, I'm gonna be honest with you. It may not be. Um, and, and I have to be more aware of that. And maybe, maybe some of us do. Um, but, um, but here's why we say that stuff is because you and I as Christians, man, we are not appointed unto wrath, but to obtain salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. And while the world looks at the world as falling apart, when you read your Bible, you realize the world is not falling apart, it's coming together. Everything is coming together in place exactly the way the Lord said it would in his word. So we're all saying, check the boxes, man. God is doing what he said he would do for the, and, and we're in our lifetime, we're the privileged part of the church that gets to see these end times events just locking into place one thing after another. And so we just go, this is awesome because that means the day of the Lord's coming soon. And we do know there's some bad times, but listen to 1 Thessalonians 5. This is the Christian and this is why we feel the way we do. Listen, 1 Thessalonians 5, 1. But of the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. By the way, why is that? Because we're studying the Bible. We study Bible prophecy. Anybody who uh, forsakes studying Bible prophecy, they're gonna miss out on what the Bible says about this. That's just the truth. That's, I feel so bad for these people that have bailed out of being into Bible prophecy because they're not gonna understand the times and seasons. They're gonna be like Joe Rogan and they're gonna be going, what in the world's going on? That's what a lot of the church is saying right now. But it says, you don't have need for, that I write to you for. You yourselves know perfectly the day of the Lord. So comes as a thief in the night. You don't know when he's coming. For when they, not us, when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child and they shall not escape. But you brethren are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. You are all children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. Again, pastors saying, ah, oh, Bible prophecy is a waste of time. Just, just love Jesus and, and just be good to your neighbor. And uh, um, you're not doing what the Bible says here. It says we're to watch and be sober concerning the end times. Four, verse seven, they that sleep, sleep in the night, they that be drunk, drunk in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Listen, for God hath not appointed us to wrath. What's one of the names of the tribulation period, anybody? The time of the wrath of the lamb. We are not appointed unto wrath, the tribulation period. Why? Because we're gonna be raptured. The Lord doesn't put his bride through his time of wrath. That's a no brainer right there if you ask me. For God hath not appointed, verse nine, to wrath, but to obtain salvation through Jesus Christ, by Jesus Christ our Lord. Um, and who died for us, that we wake or sleep, or alive or dead, should we live together with him. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another even also as you do. So when you and I talk about Bible prophecy and how we're not gonna be in the tribulation period and we get to be raptured and taken up to be with the Lord, this should be something that you and I are comforting each other with. This should be something, man, the Lord has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation. 
There are several results that should come from Bible prophecy teaching. One is comfort. Two is sort of a little a fire lit under us to share the gospel with the unsaved because we can sit around and say, well, I'm not going to hell. I'm not gonna be in the tribulation period. Well, that's not a real heart of a Christian either when there's millions of people still lost like Joe Rogan who needs to hear the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, who's the answer, the way, the truth, the life. So you and I should be busy watching, but also you know, sharing the love of Christ and, and that more and more people might be saved. Um, it's just so cool to be a part of what we're in because we're at Athey Creek, we're seeing all of the above. We're seeing people saved by the droves. And every Sunday, people, whether they're here in the building or watching online, we're just getting all kinds of great stories of people coming to Christ in these last days. And I, I believe we're gonna see more and more as the day approaches. Um, so that's what it means to you and me, comforted. We should be comforted, but we also should be uh, shaken up to be busy uh, sharing the good news. Well, there it is. That's the, uh, that little Hebrew chapter, that's the Hebrew Bible chapter three. And then we would then go into chapter four. Uh, but in our Bibles, it's chapter three. Are you still with me on that? All right, Joel chapter three, let's pick it up now. He, he doesn't leave the topic of the day of the Lord, um, but he gets into more detail. It says there in verse one, for behold in those days and at that time when I shall bring again the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem. This is speaking of the regathering of the Jews and it's something we've been seeing happening in our lifetime. Um, in the last you know, 70 years, amazingly, with the Israel becoming a nation, but even in the last 150, 200 years, the, the Jews regathering, this is, this is another sign that we're getting nearer to the day of the Lord as the Jews are being, are being gathered as we speak into the land. That's, that's what this is talking about. And by the way, this isn't new. Uh, if you've been in our Bible studies, isn't it amazing how many times the Old Testament Hebrew Bible talks about how God's gonna scatter the Jews and then he's gonna regather them. Man, we went into a massive discussion on that, Ezekiel 36, 37. Um, even in Jeremiah, do you remember in Jeremiah 23, verses three and four, I will gather the remnant of my flock out of the, all the countries whither I have driven them and I will bring them again to their folds and they shall be fruitful and increase and I will set up shepherds over them which shall feed them and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall they be lacking, saith the Lord. So, you know, this is all throughout the Bible. The Jews are gonna be regrouped, regathered into Jerusalem, into Israel, and that's what we've seen in our lifetime. And in verse two, it says that I will also gather all nations and I will bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat and will plead with them there for my people and for my heritage, Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations and parted my land. Who parted the land? You know, that would be the Romans. They parted the land and made it into Palestine, Palestina, uh, named after the ancient extinct Philistines. Um, but um, the Lord calls them out and says, I'm gonna bring the nations down to the Valley of Jehoshaphat. The big question is, and I get weirded, I, like I get nerdy about this stuff. Some of you are like, who cares where the Valley of Jehoshaphat is? But as a guy who likes to go to Israel and have spent a lot of time there, um, a lot of us are wondering, where is the Valley of Jehoshaphat? Because there's several places that could be called that, but we don't really know um, for sure. But before I get into that, where's the Valley of Jehoshaphat? Um, there's a word here in your King James that you gotta mark because um, it's, it's not a great, this is one of the translational issues that I think is pretty key. And that is the word for plead. And the King James, the word is plead. 
But in all, most all your newer translations, it's judge, sort of the judge. And the Lord's gonna judge there in the Valley of Josephat. That's the idea. You miss that if you're reading your King Jimmy, but you can look it up in the Hebrew. It's clearly the word judge. Um, I'm gonna bring the nations to the Valley of Josephat. I will judge them there for my people, for my heritage Israel, who they have scattered among the nations and parted my land. Now, by the way, remember the great judgments of the Bible. Um, the, there's the Bema Seat judgment. Uh, you guys remember that? Uh, key scripture there, you know, probably the best one is uh, there in 2 Corinthians 5, verses nine through 10. That's where Christians are judged according to their deeds and given rewards accordingly. It's not heaven or hell. It's you're judged according to the works that you do. Um, then there's the great white throne judgment uh, that I talked about at the end of the millennial kingdom. That's where the, all the unsaved will stand before God, before the white throne there in Revelation 20, 11 through 15. But there's another judgment you should be aware of um, that a lot of people sort of gloss over because they don't know what it is. Uh, honestly, the judgment of the sheep and the goats that Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46. And uh, you can look it up. We did a study on that back when we were in the book of Matthew. Um, and uh, we've done other studies on this as well. But, um, but the idea here is um, this is the Lord is gonna judge the nations, particularly how they treated the Jews through the ages. And, and what's this judgment? What are the results of this judgment? There's some interesting questions about this judgment that people sort of pontificate over and hypothesize over. But we do know this judgment of the sheep and the goats, the Lord in the Valley of Jehoshaphat is gonna bring the nations that treated Israel badly. And he's gonna say, you guys treated my people this way and you're, you're gonna be judged in this valley. And I believe this is um, what's gonna happen. That's, the, that's what we're talking about here in Joel chapter three, verse two, where the Lord's gonna gather the, the nations in the Valley of Jehoshaphat and judge them there. The judgment of the nations or the, uh, Matthew um, you know, 25, 31 through 46, the judgment of the sheep and the goats. Now you're saying, okay, Brett, that's great. I'm thoroughly confused. Uh, well, let's, let's go back to the simpler one. Where is the Valley of Josephat? Let me give you three or four possibilities. Um, there's a valley in the Bible called the Valley of Baraka, the Baraka Valley. Um, and that's where um, God crushed the, and defeated the uh, Ammonites, Moabites, and Edomites. Um, and the Edomites were crushed on behalf of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah. That story is in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, by the way. And so some would say that must be the Valley of Josephat where that Baraka Valley is because of that battle. Possibly, I don't think so. Uh, the second theory is the Kidron Valley. Um, the Kidron Valley is, um, you know, uh, defined by, by the way, the Kidron Valley was defined in, uh, by Eusebius in the fourth century AD as be, being between the Temple Mount and the Mount of Olives. So when I take people to Israel, one of the things we always do is we hike down the Mount of Olives into the Valley of Kidron, back up to Jerusalem. And it's an amazing little hike. You can do the hike in about 10 minutes, but that's the reason I don't believe this is the place where the Valley of uh, Josephine is. It's a small little valley. And uh, I don't see how the nations of the world are gonna be sort of gathered in the Kidron Valley. But there is um, biblical reasons. Josephat did do some stuff in the Kidron Valley. And so some people um, <coughs> try to ascribe that to, um, uh, to the Kidron, I don't believe so. The, the next one's starting to get more likely. Could it be the Valley of Armageddon um, or the Valley of Megiddo as it's called? 
um, the Megiddo Valley. Another place I take our group is we like to look at the Valley of Armageddon where uh, the last battle is gonna be fought and blood will flow, the horse's mane for 20 miles like it's, or 200 miles. It's gonna be like an amazing, uh, horrible battle at the end of all, all the time. But um, some people say that could be the place. That, that starts to be possible. And I'll show you why in a later verse in chapter three here as well. Um, some say, no, it's not the Megiddo Valley. It's, some, it's a future valley. It's not even there yet. Does anybody remember, is there gonna be a valley created in Israel that's not there today? Yes, and it's gonna be massive. Um, I, I, if I had more time, I'd go to Zechariah 14, four, where it talks about the Lord's gonna put his foot down on the Mount of Olives when he comes, his second coming. At the end of the tribulation period, Christ is gonna return. He's gonna put his foot down where he ascended, the same place he ascended in front of the disciples. But when he touches down on the Mount of Olives, remember what's gonna happen, an earthquake, and the Mount of Olives and, and Mount Zion's gonna split hugely. Water's gonna gush forth and flow east and west to the Mediterranean Sea and also to the Dead Sea. It's all there in Zechariah, it's an amazing prophecy. But it's gonna create this huge valley. Maybe, maybe that's the valley of Jehoshaphat. So you, you, you can kind of see why scholars and Bible prophecy buffs and um, those that are interested in these things kind of wonder where is this valley of Jehoshaphat? And you'll, you'll hear people sort of land where they believe, but I'm just giving you some of the theories. But the reason this is important is because when you and I are watching what's going on, I don't wanna be a tourist. Why are all these nations gathering after the, you know, the Valley of Armageddon and what's, what, what's God doing? And you could say, this is that which was spoken and is now being fulfilled by the prophet Joel. Um, the judgment of the nations that treated the Jews badly. Um, and that's the judgment of the sheep and the goats that parted the land and treated the Jews badly. Uh, well, there it is. That's the judgment of the sheep and the goats. Let's keep going here, verse three. And it says, not only do they part the land, but verse three, they have cast lots for my people and have given a boy for a harlot and sold a girl for wine that they might drink. Um, by the way, um, the, after the Jews were scattered, the Jews have been treated badly throughout all of history. Um, but, you know, before there was, you know, slavery in America, there, there was slavery all over the world. And, um, and people don't realize how radically the Jews were enslaved um, over all the world. Um, I try to bring this out when I took a group to Rome. A bunch of us from Athe Greek were there in Rome and the, our tour guide was showing us the beautiful Colosseum, Colosseum, as she called it there in Rome. And she was talking about the great Roman ingenuity and ability to build the Colosseum. And, and I, had to, I, knew, I know the history of that. I said, so who built this Colosseum? Well, the Romans. I said, no, like who did the work? Oh, well, slaves. Um, well, who were the slaves? Uh, they were slaves from you know, the Mediterranean area. What, what exact, like she just did not want to say it. So I just kept at, over here, question. Uh, but she had to say the Jews built the Colosseum. And the Jews were enslaved radically by the Roman Empire. Um, and, and it was all throughout history. Josephus, uh, I talk about him all the time, Flavius Josephus, a first century historian. Um, he wrote about how the Romans um, were doing this. Like he was, he was watching this with his own eyes and he wrote about it. He said, Romans chose the tallest and most beautiful and reserved them for the triumph as for the rest of the multitude that were above 17 years old. He put them into bonds, sent them to the Egyptian mines. Those that were under 17 years of age 
were sold for slaves. Like this is just history. Um, uh, the Jews were sold for slaves. And that's really what verse three here of Joel is telling us um, that these nations treated the Jews horribly and enslaved them for centuries and centuries. Verse four, yea, um, and what have you to do with me, O Tyre and Zidon and all the coasts of Palestine? Will you render me a recompense? And if you recompense me swiftly and speedily, I will return your recompense upon your own head. What you, I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna come back at you with this. Because you have taken my silver and my gold and have carried you into your temples my goodly pleasant things. And the children also of Judah and the children of Jerusalem have you sold unto the Grecians that you might remove them far from your border. Behold, I will raise them out of their place whether they have sold them and I will return your own recompense upon your own head. The Lord is saying, you know, uh, you know you're, gonna, you're, you're gonna reap what, you, what you've sowed, you nations that have treated the Jews badly. And by the way, this is not just an ancient historical observation. This is something the Lord has attached to the Jewish people from the very beginning of them, from Abraham to this present day. This is what you need to understand. This is huge. This is why, whether you wanna admit it or not, you should be, whether you have the political view, ah, Israel, whatever, you know, I don't care about Israel, they're on the other side of the earth. Uh, so what, the president wants to make a Palestinian state, who cares, whatever. This is something you should care about because God says in his word, I will bless the nations that bless Israel and I will curse the nations that curse Israel. And it's not just these nations that enslaved the Jews back in the Roman era. It's the nations today that tell the Jews, you have no right to exist in the land of Israel, which some of our presidents have even said that. You know, um, some of our presidents have even said, Jerusalem should be split in half and given to the Palestinians. No, that's not being a blessing to the Jews. Um, we wanna be a nation, we should pray that the United States, no matter what we do, we should pray that our nation is, is a friend of Israel because God has very clear promises one way or the other. If you curse Israel, you're gonna be cursed. By the way, um, there have been books written that have tracked every time we've sort of hammered against the Jews and created policy that was sort of anti-Israel, every time something cataclysmic has happened to our nation. Like there's books that have been written about that. You can look it up, it's, it's, it's interesting. There's guys that just sit around and track. You know, when we started saying, let's divide Jerusalem and give, you know, the Palestinians more than half, you know, back to the 1967 borders and we, we started pushing for that. You know, big things like the, the day that this was signed, Katrina happens. Like it's, it's, an, it's kind of an amazing thing. And it might even seem conspiratorial, check it out. Does anybody remember the name? There's one book, I think it's called Eye of the Needle or Storm. Anybody remember? Eye of the Storm, I think that's what it's called. And this guy tracked up until, um, maybe five or seven years ago, I don't remember. Every time we sign something, there's like a traceable cataclysmic problem that happened to our nation. Uh, I think that's interesting. Goes in the interesting category for sure. Well, all that to say, um, you know, the, the, the Lord's saying, whatsoever a nation sows, that would, will he also reap, just like there in the New Testament. Well, verse eight, and I will sell your sons and your daughters into the land of the children of Judah, and they shall sell them to the Sabaeans to be a people far off for the Lord hath spoken it. The Sabaeans um, or, um, or Sabians um, 
are none other than the southern part of Saudi Arabia, which is largely Yemen today. Uh, and for some reason, the Lord kind of calls that group out. But the Lord, this is, this is radical, what the Lord says in verse nine. Procla- proclaim ye this among the Gentiles, prepare war, wake up in the, uh, the mighty men, let them all, the men of war, draw near, let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am strong. Now, this is funny because we're using biblical language from some of our favorite verses in the Bible, but the Lord's saying the total opposite of some of those things. Did you notice that? Um, let me show you what I mean. But basically, the Lord's saying, you Gentiles that have treated my people badly, you better get up early, get your mighty men, because I'm gonna thump you. I'm coming after you. So beat your, your plowshares into spears and your, and, and your pruning hooks into spears and your plowshares into swords, you know, and let you stand up and say, the weak, I'm strong, but I'm still gonna crush you. That's what the Lord said. Like, this is the Lord. I mean, it's, it's kind of intimidating when you think about God telling the Gentile nations, bring it on, get ready, I'm coming. That's what he's saying. Now, by the way, um, this, this is where that plowshare into sword and pruning, we get the opposite thing there in, in Isaiah. Now, this is interesting because Isaiah chapter two, verse four says, and he shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many people and they shall beat their, this is in the millennial kingdom, by the way, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. See, it's the opposite direction. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. When's that gonna happen? The millennial kingdom. So it's funny because here in Joel, the Lord's saying, yeah, you know, beat your, your uh, plowshares into swords, the opposite. But once the millennial kingdom kicks into gear, then the, the opposite's gonna happen. Now, this is funny to me because if you go to the UN building, the United Nations, uh, the United Nothing or whatever, um, uh, look what they've got emblazoned on their stone wall. Uh, it says, they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against them, neither shall they learn of war anymore. Isn't that wonderful that they quote the book of Isaiah? But can I just say, this is the dumbest thing I've ever seen. Here's why. They left out part of the verse. What part did they leave out? Well, if we go back to the verse that I just read, um, they left out the first part. Uh, let's see, if they gotta get this backward to, to fire for me here. It's not gonna work. Well, I'll just remind you. Um, and it says, and he shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many people. That's the part they left out. Who's the he there? God. God shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many people. Not the UN. The UN is not the group that's gonna bring peace and where people are gonna beat their plowshares into swords and their you know, pruning hooks, you know, or you know, vice versa, for their swords into plowshares, their, their uh, spears into pruning hooks. The, the UN has have nothing to do with that. They're the problem. They're the problem. Um, it's the Lord. So when, when, when we see that, um, uh, there's that scripture, uh, Isaiah 2, 4. Um, the first part of that's where they left it out. But when we see that concrete wall with that sort of uh, emblazoned on there, they're taking credit for something that God's gonna do. And it's, it's a joke, it's, it's ridiculous. Uh, but anyway, I digress. I just, I just uh, marvel at these things. Well, um, it goes on and it says in verse 11, assemble yourselves and come all ye heathen and gather yourselves together round about thither. Cause thy mighty ones to come down, O Lord. Let the heathen be wakened and come up to, check it out, the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there will I sit to judge all the heathen round about. 
Now here's where the argument for the Valley of Jehoshaphat being the Valley of Armageddon might be made uh, a little more solid because you say, yeah, but Brett, we, we don't really see the battle here yet, verse 12. We just see the Lord saying, but I'm gonna judge. I'm gonna sit and judge the na- heathen nations. But if you go on in verse 13, this is starting to be revelation language. Check it out, verse 13. Put ye in the sickle, for the harvest is right. Come, get you down, for the press is full and the fats overflow, um, for their wickedness is great. Um, the, the, the language of the sickle, uh, interesting. Um, it's kind of an interesting thing. We'll read uh, here up on the screen uh, from Revelation 19, just for speed. In Revelation 19, uh, this is where the Lord is second coming. He says, I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture, check it out, dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God and the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Uh, who are those armies that are gonna follow him in linen? Us, remember, we've been raptured. We've been up in, the, in heaven with the Lord, the seven year honeymoon marriage feast of the lamb. But in the second coming of Christ, it seems that we here are gonna come and return with Christ, which is, is awesome. Now, how did his vesture, when he comes, why is it dipped in blood? Well, there's some interesting things about the timing and all the stuff that's gonna go on um, there in, uh, um, in the, the tribulation, the second coming of Christ. But one of the things you should be aware of is the, the, the book of Revelation kind of uses this language, uh, like in Revelation 14, um, 15, Revelation 14, 15. Let me just confirm that, I'll read it to you. Revelation 14, 15 um, says this. And again, this is the tribulation period. Another angel came out of the temple crying with a loud voice with him that sat on the cloud. And it says, thrust in thy sickle. Same language as Joel. Sickle, of course, is that tool that looks the grim reaper and they, they mow down the grass, you know, as they, I actually used that when I was a kid in the, in the field. We, had, we literally used a sickle. Um, and um, uh, it, it'd be a bad way to die. But here are the angels saying, thrust in your sickle to this grape. And what's the grape? People. Um, and it says, and reap for the time has come for thee to reap for the harvest of the earth is ripe. Um, and he that sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth and the earth was reaped. So this is, um, and it goes on in verse 18, talking about the grapes, they were fully ripe and the sharp sickle being thrust in by the Lord. Sickle, sickle, verse 19, verse 20. It's all about this uh, reaping of wrath that's gonna be put on. So it's a very deadly scene But this is why um, Joel uses that language there of the sickle. And it's also why Christ's vesture has been dipped in blood. And those of you that know the narrative of the end times, Christ, he also comes from Basra and his vesture is gonna be dipped in blood. So like, um, it's all about the wrath of God being poured out on a Christ rejecting sinful world there at the end of the tribulation period. Well, I know that I'm racing through this, but um, this is all really good stuff. It connects a bunch of dots, both the book of Joel and in the, in the book of Revelation. Well, all that to say, verse 13, put ye in the sickle, verse 14, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, 
for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Is that the same valley of the valley of Jehoshaphat? Is it the same valley of the valley of Armageddon? Those are the questions you kind of ask, but there's a decision that is to be made. And I can't help but kind of think about this, um, this idea of the valley of decision, you know, to, uh, to what are you gonna do? And the, the best decision is to be made right now. The further down the road you get, the decision becomes harder and harder. I hope you're a Christian now. I hope you've chosen to follow Christ now. Because after the, the rapture of the church, there will be decisions that are meant to be made. Um, there's people that will be saved during the tribulation period. But that decision is gonna be harder and it's gonna cost you greater. Uh, better to make the decision now when things are easy than to be stuck in a place where you're making a decision for Christ when it's gonna cost you your head. Um, and so that's what this verse reminds me of. That really it's, it's about the decision uh, and the day of the Lord is coming. So watch out, the day of decision. Verse 15, the sun and the moon shall be darkened. The stars shall withdraw their shining. The Lord also shall roar out of Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth shall shake, but the Lord will be the hope of his people, that's the Jews, and strengthen the children of Israel. So shall you know that I am the Lord your God dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then shall Jerusalem be holy and there shall no strangers pass through her anymore. Um, this is the beginning of the millennial kingdom, which is part of the day of the Lord. So there's the, thist, the, the, the sickle, there's the, the battle, there's the judgment of the nations, and now Christ is sitting on his throne in Jerusalem, and there's, there's just good times at that point. Now, some of you say, well, Brett, I don't know about this, no strangers passing through. What is that like? When Christ comes, will um, immigrants be unwelcome? No. Do you remember in the Bible when the words, the strange woman, for example, is used? Does that mean she's a Star Trekkie or into Pokemon or like, like why is she called the strange woman? The reason she's called the strange woman, she's a stranger to the things of God. She's a stranger to the things of the Bible and to the law of the Jews. Um, the stranger in the Bible is often referred to as the person who doesn't know the Lord. But during the millennial kingdom, there'll be no such thing really. Um, they'll all know who the Lord is and no stranger is gonna pass through her anymore because they'll, they won't be strange. There's kind of, one of the things that's interesting about the millennial kingdom is there's gonna be sort of an enforced righteousness. And I don't even know how that works, but it's gonna happen in the millennial kingdom. Um, and we'll, we'll talk more about that as we get uh, further down through the scriptures. Well, verse 18, and it shall come to pass in that day that the mountains shall drop down new wine this is all the millennial kingdom. And the hills shall flow with milk and the rivers of Judah shall flow with waters and a fountain shall come forth uh, of the house of the Lord and shall water the valley of Shittim. Why will there be water coming from the house of the Lord in Jerusalem? Anybody? Yeah, see, Terry was listening. That's awesome. One guy out of a thousand people. No, just kidding. No, no. Remember I just talked about, yeah, yeah. No, I, I just talked about it. Remember Zechariah 14, four, Jesus is going to put his foot on the Mount of, uh, of Zion there at the temple. It's going to split open and water's going to gush forth. And here again, it's not just Zechariah 14, it's here in Joel prophesying that water's going to flow down from the temple. That's going to be so cool. Uh, water, by the way, in the Middle East, that's the problem they lack water and that's why it's all desertous and even Israel's, you know, had to struggle um, with water, um, but not so in the millennial kingdom. It's gonna become this well-watered valley. 
Uh, verse 19, Egypt shall be a desolation, Edom shall be desolate wilderness for the violence against the children of Judah because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall dwell forever and Jerusalem from generation to generation for I will cleanse their blood that I have not cleansed for the Lord dwelleth in Zion. Wow, a lot here. Egypt and Edom are more, I believe, um, sort of types of the world. Egypt's a type of the world and these nations that were godless and against the Lord, they're desolate. But suddenly the epicenter of the world will not be New York or Paris or London. It's gonna be Jerusalem. And that's gonna be uh, where God rules and it's gonna become beautiful. And um, I love the last phrase, for I will cleanse their blood. That's what you and I all need. Our blood is dirtied by sin, but the innocent blood of Jesus was shed on the cross that we might have forgiveness of sin. So that's how the Lord cleanses their blood. I have, uh, he says, for I will cleanse their blood that I have not cleansed for the Lord dwelleth in Zion. He's not only cleansed our blood as the church of Jesus Christ, praise the Lord for that, but he's gonna cleanse the blood of the Jews, which is yet to happen. Right now, Israel has regathered in Jerusalem and in Israel in their unbelief. They largely do not believe in the true and living God because they don't believe that Jesus is God. But in the tribulation, they're gonna see that Jesus is the Messiah and all of Israel, Romans 11, 25, all of Israel shall be saved. And that's when the Lord's gonna take their sinful blood as he's done with ours, the church, and he's gonna do that with the Jews. Uh, and that's gonna happen in the millennial kingdom. Book of Joel, man, it's deep. Uh, there's a lot here and we just kind of raced through it. But uh, feel free. I mean, there's so much to meditate on and to consider and pray about in the book of Joel, and I find it to be really a great book. These, see what I mean? These little tiny, they call them the minor prophets. They're not minor in uh, power or structure or substance. They're like these little, you know, packs of TNT that are ready to go. And uh, Joel, the book of Joel is powerful, talking about the end times. Amen? Amen? Amen. Lord, how thankful we are that we have the hope of heaven, that we have those comforting words that you tell us, you do not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through your son, Jesus, on the cross. Lord, I pray that we'd all just have that peace that passes understanding. For those that are anxious about the days that we find ourselves living, help us to have just a right mindset that we put our trust in you and that you're or orchestrating all these events to reach the end where you're gonna come and rule and reign on this earth. So until that happens, may our light so shine before all men. May we be all about your, the gospel message and that people would have ears to hear what your word has to say. And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen.